I really like superhero movies. Uh, and I know I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you, Matt, really? You seem so cool. Uh, and uh, to be honest, it really doesn't take much digging into my past to realize that I've always had a knack for adventure. Um, as a kid, I, I rarely played uh, flag football with the friends. Instead, I did things like building uh, grappling hooks out of uh, metal hangers and climbing rope uh, so that I could be like Indiana Jones. Uh, I even wanted to wear a suit to preschool uh, so that my fellow toddlers would mistake me for James Bond. Uh, I even lied on an application to join the engineering club in high school. Not my proudest moment. But simply because uh, even though it required technical skills that I didn't have, I really just wanted to go to NASA um, and uh, go to the Space and Rocket Center in Alabama. And so uh, I just was like, yeah, I can, I can help build a, a, a moon buggy. I had no skills whatsoever. And they, they found that out pretty quickly. Um, I lived... Well, what I thought was an adventurous lifestyle, and I loved adventurous movies. Uh, so you can imagine my excitement as uh, back in 2019, I went to see the sort of penultimate superhero movie, um, and that was uh, Avengers Endgame. Okay? Oh, yeah. I've got some supporters back there. That's great. Now, if you've, if you've seen the movie, wonderful. If you haven't seen the movie, that's okay. Um, it, it, um, it, the principle will still apply. Uh, and if you were to ask me how I felt about seeing that movie, I would I would probably use a word quite dramatic, but I would probably use a word like a weighty. And the reason I would is is it's it's not hard to imagine as you get to the end of the movie, right? And um, one of the main characters dies. Uh, it was pretty dramatic for someone who had been following these characters for a long time. And so you can imagine my shock when I had a friend a few days later after seeing the movie uh, talking about it, him telling me that uh, he didn't care at all. He found it unmoving and uh, he found it uh, uh, just unimpressive. In fact, his, his exact words was, why should I care? Uh, which was just so sad for me to hear. Um, how could he say that? I mean, is he some sort of sociopath? Um, Maybe does he, did he accidentally go to the wrong movie? Uh, I couldn't believe he felt nothing, so I assumed he must just not feel anything at all. Um, but as I dug deeper into my friend's reasoning, I actually realized that he had only watched a few of the movies. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Uh, you talk to somebody about a franchise you're really excited about, whether it's a TV show or a movie, and you find out that the person that's very critical of it um, hasn't really watched it. And so, uh, it, you know, it, it makes a little bit more sense as to why he felt that way. Because you see, in this in this movie, this penultimate movie of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there have been 21 movies that had led up to it, nine of which specifically dealt with this main character who I'm talking about. Um, and all these movies had connected stories, plots, characters. Um, it was pretty amazing. And, and this character in specific, uh, just to give you a sort of a, a in, uh, insight into the depth of, of why it was such a weighty experience. Uh, throughout this, the, the movies, he, he falls in love with this lady. She, they end up getting married. And she's constantly worried about him because he's, um, he's always restless. He's always worried about the world around him. And uh, anyway, at the end of this, this movie, as he's grappling with his last moments of life with her, um, she uh, musters up the courage to tell him that um, that it's okay, she'll be fine, and that he can finally rest. It's a pretty powerful moment um, for, for a superhero movie. Likewise, there's a, a character who he's mentored and been like a father figure to throughout the, throughout the, the story, and uh, he has to say goodbye as well. It's just, it just felt, again, it just felt weighty uh, to, to see. So, 
that all as all this is happening, they they conclude the movie with this beautiful funeral scene. Uh, in in this scene, uh, the the writers of the movie are trying to communicate to the characters in the movie, but also to the audience uh, that it's okay to move on. Uh, and as a fan of these movies for over a decade, uh, this was a pretty big moment to witness. And stories are powerful, um, even if they take place in a fictional universe with superpowers. And it's no wonder that my friend found the ending kind of bland. He he came into the story with no prior perspective or uh, of the complicated and emotional story that had led up to that moment. Here's, here's what I'm trying to say uh, with this very long story about a Marvel movie. You won't feel the full weight of a call for, for closure or anything if you don't understand the story that led you up to that point. And um, I'll just say for today's sermon, I hate to say it, I fear I'm at risk again. Um, you, you see, First Peter is a letter. And if your most trusted mentor sent you a letter from afar, it would be highly unlikely that you would open and read six sentences of it and then take a break for a week. Uh, no, uh, probably what you would do if you'd received a letter from someone like that, you'd probably read it from start to finish, perhaps even multiple times in one sitting. Uh, so hence, here we come to a common struggle among preaching. Most of the time with sermons, you can pick a passage, you know, package it up, and preach it with, with few problems, but not always. Not always. At this point in First Peter, he has laid out perhaps one of the most hopeful messages in all of the New Testament. Uh, it's bursting at the seams with the why of our hope. Specifically, verses 3 through 12 lay out a tremendous encouragement for Christians in the first century and thus for us today. And now starting in verse 13, what I'm preaching on today, Peter, it, it's time for Peter to make his plea. Uh, it, he has, it's time he tells us to do something about what he said. Specifically, he's calling us to be holy. But if I if I simply, I simply cannot expect anyone uh, to really fully appreciate what is being said in this passage. I don't even expect myself if we don't first understand the story that's led up to it. And this is part of the reason why I had Taylor read the verses leading up to verse 13. Uh, it's really about saying that we need to review and be sure of what he said in verses 3 through 12 as a great encouragement. That way we understand why we're being called to action. Um, so, as we go now to just very quickly review verses 3 through 12, we're going to get a, a, a sense of the why in today's passage uh, so that we can go in do, so to speak. So let's, let's, re let's review. Uh, verses 3 through 5, you can look at your text as you're doing this, but I'm going to briefly summarize it. Um, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter's given an introduction just of who he is um, and who he's writing to. It's very common among uh, Hellenistic or Greek writing to uh, introduce themselves in the way that Peter has. But he really gets to sort of the, the meat of the text in verses 3 through 5. You see, he says in the verses 3 through 5 that in God's great mercy, we have been born again into a living hope. And that hope, because of it, we now have an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. And we, as believers, are being guarded and kept for our eventual salvation when, when Christ returns. And don't worry, you got to pick up on the fact that this is all about a family affair. I mean, think about these words for a second. Inheritance, father, born again. Brothers and sisters, we have real hope in this passage. 
and we have real hope, and I hope that you see it, that God is guarding us. He's guarding our hearts, and he's a loving father who has secured you and I a real inheritance in heaven with him. And as we go to verses 6 through 9, we learn that in this life, if God wills it, various trials will come. Of course, Peter is speaking to Christians who have been rejected in their culture for their faith. Uh, And in their situation, and similar to ours, grief and sorrow will come in the name of Christ. Yet this passage affirms something really radical, which is that you can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So why can we rejoice? Well, verses 6 through 9 of 1 Peter 1 tells us that, so that our tested, the tested genuineness of our faith may result in honor in heaven. Do you realize, this is, this is amazing as I think about it. Sometimes when we think of Christian trials, we think of like stories of like, you know, people in, in the Middle East who are being um, healed for the faith, and that certainly is, is an example. But uh, uh, Christian suffering is, is a lot more pervasive than that. And I hope that you realize that at any time you've you've been in a trial of your life, you have suffered for the name of Christ, um, even in your context here in America, that it's come to you being a Christian so that those experiences would serve as opportunities for your faith to be proven genuine. And this isn't, we hear test and we get nervous. We think, we think we're back in grade school. We're like, why would God test us? But the reality is, is that test, this test is an encouraging test. What do I mean? Well, Imagine the satisfaction of seeing the faith you hold dear tested. And because God has given you strength, your faith prevails. Imagine how that would make you feel. All those trials, though hard and real, will result in honor from the Lord on that day we're with him. Wow, this is an amazing truth. And then lastly, we look to verses 10 through 12, where we find that in a brief history lesson, sort of an overview, that the prophets of the Old Testament felt this intense interest and desire to know who and what time the Messiah of God would come and complete his plan of redemption. And these promises were held dear for millennia, and that one day they would finally come to fruition. And it's so hard for us to realize this, but but you, me, us, we are the heirs of those Old Testament hopes. Even more so, now we get to hear about these hopes fully realized in the gospel of Jesus Christ, taught to you by the Holy Spirit and from modern believers who share the word, who, who share the gospel with you. And even the angels, and this is a very interesting point we've talked about before, but even the angels in heaven, God's own company, are stunned with interest at the grace of God. Have you realized that we're the heirs of an ancient grace? Have you realized that that this same grace that was prophesied and held on to and hoped for has been treasured and investigated for thousands of years? And we, right now, 2021, we have the full testimony of God realized in the man of Jesus Christ. These are amazing, amazing truths. One final note on these earlier passages before we move to verse 13. Why all this encouragement? <laughs> you know, why does Peter emphasize suffering so much? You know, why does he refer to Christians as foreigners? Well, we've already touched on this. Uh, Gary did in, in previous messages. But I, I want to emphasize that Peter is emphasizing the otherness of Christianity, the otherness of Christianity, that while Christianity is at home in every culture, it is also undeniably at odds with every culture in some way. In short, Peter is emphasizing that um, Christians are, have an unmistakable identity 
that separates them from the society they live in. It makes us a lifelong foreigner in an unbelieving world. Being a Christian, it's truly amazing. For, for, for people maybe in this church who are first, second, third generation uh, Americans, Asian Americans, some of you probably still don't feel like this is home. But the beautiful thing about Christianity is, is that it gives us a security and a homeliness that is more secure than being in your childhood home. It's more secure than being surrounded by everything you consider familiar. And this is an amazing, amazing truth. I can't, you might be thinking, Matt, you were, you were told to preach on verses 13 through 21. Why, why, why are we spent so much time now on, on these verses? Because I, I really want, and I mean this, I really want verses 13 through 21, I want them to hit you like a bus, okay? I really want the full weight of these passages to mean something to you. And I think the only way that's going to happen is if we understand why, you know, why Peter is about to command us to do something. Okay, so how do we stand apart? Well, the topic of today is holiness. That's how we stand apart, which we're going to discuss. But nevertheless, these are the truths that Peter wants you to have in mind as you approach verse 13. These are incredible truths that enable us to obey God's word, to become those marked differently from a world, bolstering character and optimism that is only possible in Christ. We get to have a hope so sturdy, so countercultural, that we become known as people of unmistakable holiness. That is sort of a, a key word of today, unmistakable holiness. And uh, boy, do we have great hope, brothers and sisters. And it's at this point, just in reflection of that, I do, I do want to pray. And I, I just want to take a moment and thank God for that exactly. Let's do that together now. God, thank you so much for these beautiful truths that, that Peter has shared with us that we are now gleaning and, and, and sort of chewing on from your word, Lord. We're, we're here and seeing fully, Lord, how you have shown us so many facets of the grace you've shown us from the ancient days of Israel to even now. God, we pray that as a church we would see that story of redemption, that we would be a church that honors this gospel. And not only that we wouldn't just honor it, Lord, but that we would be unashamed by it. Lord, that we would be a church unhindered in our worship because we're not held captive to the sways of modern culture. God, that we would be people who stand firm in our undeniable identity in Christ. God, that that identity would create an uncommon community of believers that is absolutely, um, it can't be explained in any other way than the grace of God. God, that that community would work towards means of uncompromised discipleship to those who desperately need your word. And Lord, that we would proclaim and exhort this through unapologetic preaching. God, I'm here now uh, just asking that you would do just that. I'm not here to um, uh, become popular. You know, I'm not here to, um, you know, sort of, flaunt my skills. Lord, I'm, I'm here, hopefully, to teach your word well. So God, I pray that as we uh, leave here today, that the mark of success for my sermon would not be um, uh, people thinking I'm a great preacher, um, you know, people, you know, you know, liking the, the, the movie reference at the beginning. Lord, I pray that the measure of the success of this sermon would be the Christ-likeness, that people become more like Jesus and more hopeful and more holy. 
God, we can't do that on our own. We need you, and that's why we pray right now. So we ask for your help. Come and help us, Lord, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today I want to let God's Word map for us how to be people of unmistakable holiness. Okay, so you got the theme as I was praying. I was going through the values that we have as a church, right? And I'm just sort of tacked one on the bottom, okay? Don't worry, I don't think it's going on the website, but it is still important nonetheless that if we're going to be people of all those things, we also need to be people of unmistakable holiness. But today's going to be a slightly different sermon. It's going to be a little bit more... uh, it's going to be a little bit more like we're in the classroom, okay? You know, the last time I preached, it was sort of like I built this big cake, and it had points and subpoints, and, you know, you know, rhetorically, it was, it was well-structured. Um, but as I read this passage and studied this passage, I realized that, um, really, there's no better way to digest this text than just to be in it. Okay, and so as a church, I want to, as we as we preach, I want to be very close to the text. I want your, you know, so in order to benefit from that, I, you know, have your Bibles open, be willing to look at the text with me, and show that God can reveal who He is in His Word. So Peter, by the way, is not envisioning here that that we need to be a people with a to do list. Okay, uh, instead, we're more like um, we're more like engines who need uh, new fuel. Okay. Have you ever tried to run a high-powered, high-grade engine with low-grade fuel? Okay, neither neither have I. But I do know, I do know that um, certain engines require certain types of fuel. Uh, likewise, we can try to run the sort of Christian engine of our life via a to-do list of holy activities. Okay, you guys are familiar with this. We just sort of like, we, we got to make sure we do this, go to church, wake up, do our quiet time. We can try and do that, um, and, and maybe... Maybe it does produce some holiness. I think that there's some. I think that there is some credence to you know, sort of forcing yourself to do tasks you know are good for you. But that being said, I want to suggest an alternative, and that is is that instead of just uh, you know lengthening our to do list, what if we start to we sort of change the fuel of the Christian life? What if we change the motivation of the Christian life, the why? I think if we do this, if we do the work, um, I think what you're going to find is that there's going to be a huge change in desire, and ironically, I think you'll actually find that the to-do list becomes a little bit less necessary, and that's a really great thing. Um, so here we are. Peter gives us new fuel in verses 13 through 21 for our unmistakable holiness, and those things are hope and fear. Oh boy, I just said fear in regards to the Christian life. Let's get to work studying this passage. Our first section is called Unmistakable Holiness Fueled by Hope. This is verses 13 through 16. Let's read. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you, is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Wow. The main verb in verse 13 is to set your hope. This is an imperative, and um, for those that aren't, you know, familiar with that type of of language or grammar, um, it's a type of verb that tells you to do something. 
okay? And this is actually the first time it appears in First Peter, is uh, Peter tells us to set your hope. Um, and he says that with an opening word, therefore, okay? And this, you know, I'm sure you've heard about this. I've heard Gary mention it before, but just as a reminder, uh, therefore is a hinge word, okay? Uh, uh, you know, the phrase goes, you know, if you see therefore, you need to see what it's there for, okay? And the idea is, is that when you see the word therefore, it's immediately calling back to the argument that's just been made. And that's exactly what we just ran through from verses 3 to 12, okay? So, it's as if Peter is saying, um, for all those things I just said in verses 3 through 12, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, great. All right. But the question, it sort of begs the question, how? Um, listen, listen carefully here. Isn't hope an emotion? How do you obey a command to feel something? You, have you ever asked that question? Um, you can't just clench your fists, close your eyes, and say, oh, you know, hope, Matt, you know, start hoping. It's just, it, that's not how it works. Uh, and this brings up a big question uh, that's worth thinking about. What if I don't feel like I should? What if I don't feel like hoping? What if I don't feel the hope I'm supposed to? In fact, this is such a serious question, and I really do mean this, um, that some people actually leave the faith because of this, okay? Because they understand things intellectually. Everything about the Christian life makes sense, but they don't have any affection for God or the faith, and that's a serious problem. Um, this is a big question that's sadly not often answered, and I want to say two things about it. Okay, first, um, I can understand the desire to want to feel things, um, and it is an important part of the Christian life, but emotions are only one part of the experience of Christianity. Some Christians put all their stock in emotions, but this often leads to failure, because what happens when those emotions fade? Or what happens if they're ever challenged? Christians are mindful people, not mindless people, as we will see. That said, what happens when Christians put all their stock in purely the intellect? Well, unsurprisingly, similar results. If God intends for us to be a people of hope, then surely our affections deserve a piece of the Christian life, right? Here's my point. Emotions are not always reliable. They can be fleeting or easy to influence. But with that said, emotions are powerful and a beautiful part of the Christian life. I encourage you today to not be either a complete skeptic or a romantic about emotion. I encourage you to embrace the tension between the two, that God has included emotion as a part of his design. But our faith doesn't make or break on it alone. Which brings me to my next point. It really is Peter's advice in this passage. Look at verse 13. He says, well, he doesn't say, therefore, set your hope. No, no, no. No, look back. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Wow. Okay. This is worth unpacking. Preparing your minds for action. What is this talking about? Well, uh, it's actually quite interesting. The, uh, preparing your minds for action, that is, um, that's a paraphrase. But if you actually read the Greek, if you read the original language there, it actually says, and this is a quote, um, gird up the loins of your mind. That's actually what's present in the Greek. And um, this is a phrase that's virtually unheard of in, in a modern society. But uh, to gird up one's loins would have been, would have been very clearly aware to Peter's audience. Uh, so we do a little extra homework, but what we find out is that the practice of girding up your loins was actually a common practice among uh, men uh, in the ancient world where many of them would wear tunics that would reach all the way down to the ground. Um, but whenever it was time to sort of get busy, whenever it was time to sort of roll up your sleeves, okay, um, particularly in war, um, these men would 
take their tunics that are going down to the ground, they would pull up the excess between their legs and wrap it around their, their, their legs and tie it off. And what this would do is it essentially would turn um, their tunic or their dress into shorts. It, it gave them more mobility, right? The idea behind this is that um, when he says, gird up the loins of your mind, he's saying, uh, become energetically mindful, right? Or another way of saying this would be to um, roll up the sleeves of your mind, okay? He also says, and be sober-minded. And this sober-mindedness actually modifies, it's an adverb for the idea of girding the loins of your mind. And so what we find is, is that if we're to sort of prepare our mind, we're supposed. how do we do that? Well, he gives us the answer right there. He says, be sober-minded. I think a better translation of this phrase is be self-controlled. But the, but the idea still prevails here. Uh, here's, here's what I'm saying. Do you want to hope, right? Do you want to be hopeful but you don't feel it? Well, the Bible's aware of that, and it has an answer. It says, Gird up the mind, or prepare the mind, be self-controlled. I think it has essentially the idea that our hearts take training. In, in more Christian terms, and I think this is the best way to say it, the mind is a servant of the heart. Not to go too deep into this, but think back to Romans 12 where it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This passage, we're told to do this in recognition of the mercies of God. Likewise, in this passage that we're talking about in 1 Peter, the idea of preparing the mind for action can be done, well, here we go, by learning, rehearsing, and dissecting the mercies of God. So the key to, key to, so the key to proper Christian hope, if it's not already present, is to use your mind. Place your mind on the things of God. Place your mind on the truth of God. I think... Peter has in mind everything he's just said in verses 3 through 12, right? Do you want to have hope as a Christian? Let your head, your mind, be a servant to your heart. Remind yourself of the truth of God. Remind yourself of verses 3 through 12, and I think you'll find something amazing happens. You'll start to hope, right? Because, I mean, here's the deal, okay? The key to proper Christian hope is to use the mind, but you need to give it firewood to burn off, right? And we do that by observing the character of God in his word, by recalling the things that we've learned. So, and this is such a deeply profound but incredibly practical tip, put your thinking to the service of your heart, and you'll find your emotions, your hope, profoundly affected. This is a really incredible truth. I can't, I can't begin to talk about how, how deep this is. All right. Let's continue. So, so we've established that we are to set our hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, how are we to do that? Well, we talk about preparing our minds for action and being self-controlled or sober-minded. But what are we hoping for? Well, if we read verse 13 again, it says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a present and eschatological, or last day sort of meaning, is that our, our hope is in the grace that we've been given in the finished work of Christ and the future revelation of him at the end of time. So if we think back to verse 7, um, we actually see the phrase, at the revelation of Christ, used again. And if we read it, we might actually have some clarity as to what's happening here. And in that verse, we learn that those whose faith has been tested will receive honor in heaven. And I think that's what Peter's talking about here. He says, set your hope fully on this grace, right? The grace that 
You'll receive honor in heaven as your faith is tested. Set your hope in the future things. And I think that this is a really important truth to remember. He wants us to believe and truly put full all of our hope in this. Okay, we continue. In verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Or in other words, there was ignorance that you had before you were a believer. And that ignorance was soil for passions and desires that resulted in you conforming to those passions in conduct, right? I'll say that again. It's kind of a word salad, but um, it's helpful to break it down. You once were ignorant before you were a believer. You didn't have the right knowledge. That ignorance was fertile soil for passions, bad passions and desires. And those passions and desires, they affected your conduct, right? They created um, un-Christ-like conduct. Isn't this a summary of the life before Christ? And Peter is telling us that our ignorance of our past self is remedied by knowledge of all things that were mentioned in verses 3 through 12. So here's what he's saying. Don't be like your former self, okay? And in verse 15 and 16, he says, But as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If we follow Peter's flow here, what we find out in verses 15 and 16 is that he's really stating the antithesis of verse 14. In other words, here's what he's saying. If our former ignorance as unbelievers was fertile soil for dangerous passions that resulted in unholy conduct, then we are being called to use our present knowledge as believers for fertile soil for positive or holy passions that result in holy conduct. So do you see how hope fuels holiness? All this talk about holy, though, it has me thinking, what what makes something like me or you or my conduct holy? Peter quotes an Old Testament verse in Leviticus in verse 15 when he says, quote, you shall be holy as I am holy. But what is God's holiness? What are we talking about? Well, in a simple word, holiness is really means set apart. It comes from a Hebrew word that means uh, sort of torn off or set apart. Um, but to paraphrase a bit, it's almost as if the, if there's a measure to measure someone's righteousness uh, and there's zero and then there's the most holy person in the world, God's holiness is off the charts. That's really what holiness is really getting at, right? God is not even on the same standard that we are because he is his own standard, right? But most literally, it does mean set apart. So for us to be holy, we have to have holy conduct. When we think and act in ways that show God is set apart. We do that in large part um, by hoping, uh, in our hoping, uh, in the end, uh, well, let me restart that phrase. We do this, we, we show God is set apart in large part by our hoping in the out-of-this-world grace that God has shown us. And it will be fully realized when Christ returns. But this, this holiness also has a secondary meaning, which is when we do these things, people of sturdy hope, knowledgeable of God's mercy, so much that it produces godly conduct, and that conduct becomes our own version of being set apart. Instead of being set apart in perfect righteousness as God is, as creator and creation, we become set apart from the world around us, who are slaves to their ignorance, as we've already explained not marked by sacrificial love, things like sacrificial love and obedience to God. Instead, we become unmistakably holy. 
All right. These are incredible truths, but I want to move on, and I want to go to verses 17 through 21. And this is where we get to our second point, which is unmistakable holiness fueled by fear. So let's read 17 through 21. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. But with the precious blood of Christ, pardon me, and if you call on him as, fa- uh, as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. In this passage, we sort of stumble upon a major problem. It seems like a problem. And that is that Peter tells us to conduct ourselves with fear. All right, I need to time out for a second. Before we jump into this, I, I, I need to make two notes of clarification. So first one, the term here, fear, really does mean fear. You might think, well, yeah, but some maybe people who've studied the Bible in detail, um, you know, know that sometimes when you're translating koine or, or conversational Greek from the ancient world into modern English, there can be alternate words in English um, that we can use to display nuance or to clarify um, ideas. But in all of my reading and research, it seems, I genuinely feel like the best word that represents the original Greek is fear. And I think we need to stick with that. Here's why. Um, because this is an imperative word, God, God is commanding us to do something, right? You know, Peter is saying, right, conduct yourself with fear. Um, and because it's telling us to do something, we must obey. Even if this is a difficult passage to understand, we should not shy away from the challenge. It would be too easy to bend the meaning, okay? This would be a lot easier for me to just sort of like, you know, flub it a bit, you know, to bend the meaning or to entirely avoid this verse. Um, But if we're going to be people of the text, people of God's word, um, we kind of need to take it as it is. Um, And we need to be patient in understanding. Oftentimes, when I approach a difficult passage, it's actually important to pray, but also to dig into the context, the sentence structure. It seems like hard work, but it's actually a lot easier than you think. And when you commit to the hard work of being a student of the Bible, you'll always walk away thankful for it. All right, so let's dig a little deeper. We've been told that we have to have a kind of conduct, which is certainly going to be holy conduct. But now, instead of it being fueled by hope, we're told to conduct ourselves fueled by fear. Well, I think that this fear is corresponding to the sentence before it, because he says, our Father will judge impartially according to each one's work. And it's important to recognize right off the bat that this phrase, according to, in according to each one's work, is not the same thing as on the basis of. This is a really important difference in meaning. In other words, God will judge impartially corresponding, right, or according to each one's work. His judgment of those in Christ and those not in Christ will correspond to those who do good works because they have been born again and have the Spirit of God who helps them put to death the deeds of the body and those who do not live a life of good works because they have not been born again and they do not have the Spirit. I'm not saying that uh, you're saved by works. Uh, In fact, what I'm saying here is that um, the one we call Heavenly Father judges everybody on the same type of evidence. Namely, 
What do our lives say about our heart? There won't be different rules for different people. This is an important clarification to make. So now we come to this big problem. How do we conduct ourselves in fear? You know, when I come to a difficult passage, another thing I like to do is to uh, look up places in Scripture where the same word or phrase is used and hope that maybe it'll provide some clarification or conducts, context. And I think we can do that if we go to uh, Philippians, uh, Philippians 2.12. You can do that in your Bibles, or you can listen carefully. I have it right here um, for sake of time. And it says this. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In this passage in Philippians, we are to think about our salvation in a perpetual—well, let me ask this. Are we to think about our, our salvation in a state of perpetual nervousness and anxiety? Uh, certainly not. Paul here actually explains further in the chapter— um, he describes himself as straining or pressing on towards the goal of Christ-likeness. The fear and trembling he's experiencing is the attitude that Christians have in pursuing a goal, which is a healthy hesitancy to offending God through disobedience, due to our awe and respect for his majesty and holiness. It's a fear of treating God less than what he is. Likewise, Peter here, in these verses, um, I, I He's saying something similar. I think that it's very appropriate to fear, as if we live our lives, that our faith doesn't matter. We should fear living like that. One helpful scholar says this, and I think it's really helpful. He says, it was the same spirit that Jesus had when he said, this past, this idea is the same in the same spirit um, that Jesus had when he said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better to enter life with one eye than with two and to be cast into hell. What is he saying? He's saying, fear living in ways that betray your lack of satisfaction in God. Brothers and sisters, I want to be clear here. We have been saved by grace through faith alone. But I don't want you to miss this. Your conduct matters. And this is such an important reminder because the church loves to gloss over this point, at least the churches I've been around, including thinking our behavior doesn't matter because, well, grace but right here, our God is calling us to fear that behavior because it leads to destruction. But what comes next in this verse should humble us, but simultaneously encourage us. Let's read again, verses 17 through 19. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with a lamb, I'm sorry, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Pursue holy conduct with fear because we know that we are ransomed, not with perishable, inanimate objects of limited worth, but with uh, imperishable, living sacrifice of infinite worth. Did you catch that? This should really humble us. We're told to fear, avoid, to flee from conducting ourselves in a way as though the ransom were not as precious as it was. But there is such encouragement here with a sobering reminder. Notice the infinite value and everlasting durability of this ransom. The blood of Jesus is precious, and our ransom came at a high cost, but it is permanent. Amen to that. 
theologian John Piper, he he explains this point better than I ever could. So instead of trying to, you know, come up with my own version, I'm just going to quote him. Here's what he says. God's purpose in the blood of Jesus is our justification and our sanctification, our pardon and our purity. They cannot be separated. This is such a good point. Therefore, if our con- if in our conduct we are tempted to act as though the preciousness and the permanence of the blood of Jesus were import- were impotent to hold us back from sin, then we should fear. Because if our lives bear constant witness to the powerlessness of the blood of Jesus, then Jesus is not really our hope or joy, and we do not belong to him, and that is a fearful prospect. The sum of the matter is this, hope in the grace of God and fear not hoping in the grace of God. Fear the behavior that would show you that would show that you don't trust in the all-satisfying preciousness of the love of Jesus. Now let's look to verses 20 and 21. <clears throat> the Lamb of God, are, uh, at reading verses 20 and 21, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. All right, so the Lamb of God, our precious Jesus Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, made manifest in the last days. Jesus was set apart. Really what's being said here is that Jesus was actually set apart before the world existed. God's begotten Son was then made manifest at the right time, inaugurating the last days. Do you see this whole timeline of history? Jesus is a part of every bit of it, and he did it for our sake. He goes on to point out that through him, meaning Christ, we come to believe in God who raised him from the dead. And he did this for our sake so that we would place our faith and hope in him. In other words, God through Christ is working to make himself our treasure. So why is Peter telling us this? All right, well, I'm sort of closing up here. But why why is Peter telling us this in verses 20 and 21? I think it's because in his connection with the previous point about fear, reverence and, and respect for God, Peter is highlighting the dignity and worth of Jesus so that we see in a more personal and simultaneously cosmic way who Christ is. And because of who it is, we respond with holiness, unmistakable holiness. So in closing, after all of that, we've been sort of deep in the text. I know that was a, quite a bit of work, but um, you know, how do we fuel obedience through fear? Let's review. I would say you fuel obedience through fear, and I think this is evidence in the text, by fleeing from behavior that communicates that we don't see the blood of Christ as precious and we don't see it as our permanent ransom. By this fearful behavior, um, we, we need to run away from it. We need to fear behavior that doesn't recognize our Lord and Savior as set apart, foreknown, manifested, and a sacrifice for our sake. And, brothers and sisters, I want to sort of close on this sort of sobering thought with a really encouraging note. This is not a disabling reality. This is actually an enabling reality. It enables us to the type of holy conduct that stands us apart from the world and communicates the holiness and set-apartness of our great God. Wow, this is a rich passage. Um, it's a challenging one, but it's a rich one. And I'm, I'm quite tired after sharing it with you. But let me leave you with some practical advice. I, I, I just feel like there's so much here to glean off of. I just want to throw this at you very quick, very short. Um, think about this. Number one, let your mind be a servant to your heart. Some practical tips on that. Read letters as letters. We talked about this in the beginning. 
read the, you know, think deeply about the Bible. One of the ways you can do that is by reminding yourself of the mercies of God, reminding yourself consistently of the truth of God. And one of the best ways you can do that is not through sort of, you know, sitting around and diagramming and picking apart. Sometimes you just have to read the letters as letters. Sit down and read the book of First Peter. Read the letter of Romans in one sitting. I, I cannot, you'll pick up on so much stuff that you normally wouldn't. You know, verses, verse, verses and chapters is, a, is sort of a, a modern addition to the Bible. You know, obviously, um, when they were writing these letters, they weren't, you know, saying verse 1, you know, verse 2. We, we did this to help us understand, to reference, to, to, to look at the Bible. And it's a great tool, but it, it can also be a bit of a hindrance. It teaches us that the Bible is, is meant to just sort of be picked apart. Um, and while there is some truth to that, because it is sort of, an in, um, a, sort of a, a deep well of knowledge, it's also, a lot of it is, it's their stories, their letters. Read them as such. Another way you can let your mind be the servant of your heart is by memorizing Scripture. Put the words of God in your head so that your heart can use them to produce hope. Um, and then lastly, is to this point, I'll just say take notice of your hope. When you do those things, when you feel yourself hoping in God, realize that that's a real thing. That's substantive, okay? You didn't, you didn't clench your fist and say, hope today, right? No, God, God is producing that, okay? That's an absolute gift. Number two, strive to live a life that communicates the infinite worth of Jesus' sacrifice. This is the whole fear point, right? Take steps to prevent ungodly behavior. Be self-aware. Use people around you. It's worth it. It's actually worth fearing demonstrating behavior that doesn't value the preciousness of, of Christ, Use your spouse, use your, you know, your brother, sister, somebody to hold you accountable to, to, to constantly be living a life that communicates to yourself and to the world that God is worth it. And lastly, take notice of your fear. I think if, if, as you start doing these things, you'll start to realize that, man, you really, really don't want to live a life of unholiness. It's not legalistic. This is, this is a production <laughs> in the same way that hope is from the Holy Spirit. You'll start to actually want to avoid these these behaviors. Lastly, whatever holiness, rooted church, whatever holiness comes in your life, whatever unmistaken holiness comes in your life, praise God for it. Remember verses 3 through 12. Think of all the things he's given you. I mean, really, this holiness is it's, it's not your best effort, right? It's, it is, the, it is the, the result of such abounding grace. Uh, anyway, I hope that, that this has been encouraging for you. Apologize for going a little over time, but um, uh, in, in, that, in that vein, let's, let's pray quickly and, and be dismissed. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word. What a, what a treasure chest. Um, you know, as I was reading, Lord, uh, this letter, I just <laughs> became overwhelmed with how many sermons I could probably preach out of it. Um, but, Lord, you know, time is of the essence, and um, you can do great work with brevity. And I'm hoping today, Lord, that something I've said will actually stick. God, I pray that Rooted Church would be a people of sticky faith. And what I mean by that, Lord, as you know, is that it's a faith that carries with them outside these doors. It's a faith that carries with our students into college. It's a faith that carries with our, parent, uh, our, our young adults into parenthood, that, that carries our um, older um, uh, members into retirement. God, I pray it's a faith that carries with them. Lord, and I pray that that faith produces unmistakable holiness that can only be attributed to you. 
Oh God, we're in such desperate need of your help in times like these. I just pray that, that you would be present in our lives. Thank you for your son, Jesus, Lord. This whole passage, it, it, it hinges on him. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for his precious blood. It's his name I pray. Amen.